Well, please uh, turn back in your Bibles to that reading that we had a minute or so ago, Matthew's Gospel and Chapter 2. And this week, uh, not this week even, tonight, uh, hopefully we're going to see three kind of sections in this passage. Firstly, uh, Joseph and Mary uh, escaping to Egypt with the baby Jesus or with the toddler Jesus as he may have been at this point. Uh, And then Herod's slaughter of the baby boys in Bethlehem and finally the return to Nazareth. And what I want us to recognise as we go through this passage tonight, and I think what Matthew really wants us to see is this, that though Jesus is on the run throughout this entire passage, that God is nevertheless fulfilling his plan through him. And we can see that, can't we, by looking at verses 15, by verse 18 and verse 23. We, we see the repetition of that statement, so was fulfilled what the prophet said. Without those words, it would be very easy to read this passage and to think that Herod was calling the shots and that God was kind of ducking and diving, just trying to escape Herod's grasp. But that's not what's going on. God is working out his plan even through Herod's hatred and murderous rage. God is working through Jesus to secure salvation for his people. And all the events that take place are actually a fulfilment of what God has promised would take place. So, uh, we're going to look at this passage tonight under three headings, and each of our headings is based on a prophecy from the Old Testament that's being fulfilled. So our first heading tonight is, Out of Egypt I called my son. So look at verse 13. The magi, or the wise men, have left, having offered their gifts. And then we're told that that night, God speaks to Joseph in a dream. So look at verse 13. Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt... And remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. Now, just imagine for a moment how frightening an experience this must have been. Joseph is woken up. Uh, by the vision of this angel. This angel who says to him in a dream, Joseph, get up and get out. Because Herod's men are on their way. And if they find you, they will kill Jesus. And so uh, Joseph, in the middle of the night, has to wake up Mary. Mary, Mary, get a bag together. Just the essentials. Just to throw a few clothes in a bag. Get out. And in the middle of the night, they have to literally run from Bethlehem and get as far away as they possibly can. I was speaking to someone uh, this morning, and they were saying, it's difficult enough to get out of the house when you've got little kids. But when someone's trying to kill you, I mean, that makes it far, far worse. That's what Joseph was experiencing, wasn't it? 
in the middle of the night, they have to get up, get a bag together, and they have to run. And then they have this week-long journey to Egypt. It probably would have been roughly a week. We don't know how they got there, but when they do get there, they've got all the practicalities of arriving in a new country. So they've got to find somewhere to live. Uh, Joseph's got to find a job. They probably need to use some, if not all, of the money that they've got from the wise men's gifts. It must have been a frightening, tiring, and painful experience, mustn't it? To leave the country that they've known and loved and to go to a completely different country. Essentially to become refugees, which is what they are here. But as difficult, as tiring, as frightening as all of this was, what Matthew wants us to see in verse 15 is that this is part of God's plan. Look at verse 15. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Now, here's the problem. When you read the passage that Matthew is quoting from, he's quoting from the book of Hosea and chapter 11, it is very obvious that Hosea is not looking forward to the coming of the Messiah, but he's actually looking backwards to the rescue of Israel out of Egypt by God at the Exodus. So if you've got a a, a Bible, and if you can, why not turn back to uh, Hosea and chapter 11? If you're using a church Bible, you can find that on page 961, if the Bible you have is the same as the one I have here. Uh, 961, Hosea chapter 11. And just listen to what Hosea says, or God says through Hosea. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt... I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Do you see, verse 2, the language changes. God's speaking of them, they. It's obvious that Hosea, as he records God's message, is not looking forward to the Messiah. He's looking back to the rescue of Israel out of Egypt. So what do we make of that then? What's Matthew doing? Is he just reaching back into the Old Testament and just ripping a verse completely out of context? You know, here's a verse that speaks about Egypt and a son. Well, that that, that kind of fits. Let's just use that. Let's throw that in there. Is that what Matthew's doing? Well, no. What Matthew's actually doing is he's showing us something really important about the role that Jesus would perform. But to understand that, we're going to have to connect the dots. So I want you to have in your mind an image. Uh, When you have an architect who's designing a building, what do they do? Well, they don't just have drawing plans, do they? Uh, An architect who's designing a building, they'll often build a model. Uh, so it might be made of kind of foam board or cardboard, and, and they'll build this little model, and it will show what the finished building is going to look like. 
Well, what Matthew seems to be wanting us to understand is this, that that is what Israel was. Israel was a model, but a model of what? Well, in Exodus chapter 4, Israel is described as God's firstborn. In terms of Israel's role, Israel was described as God's son. Israel was the nation that God would love. It was the nation that would inherit everything that God had to offer as they lived under his rule. But what Matthew wants us to see here, as he tells us about Jesus, is this. That Israel was only ever the cardboard son. Only ever the model. God always had in mind something bigger, someone better. God always planned that the role of the son would be fulfilled by the son. And so if we're going to understand what Matthew's saying, we have to understand that. Israel was a model. And Israel was built on the blueprints of what God intended for his son. So their experiences, coming out of Egypt, going through the Red Sea, their time in the wilderness, coming to the promised land, their eventual exile and return, all of it was following the blueprint of the Son. And Matthew makes that clear as we go through the Gospel. So, having returned from Egypt, what what are we told next? What does Matthew tell us? Well, we're told about Jesus' baptism. Just as Israel went through the Red Sea, so Jesus goes through the water. And then where does Jesus go? Well, he goes into the wilderness, just like Israel went into the wilderness. And what does he experience there? He experiences hunger and thirst, just like Israel did. But whereas they moaned and groaned and grumbled and turned against God... Jesus remains faithful. And where does Jesus go from the wilderness? Well, chapters 5 and 7 of Matthew, Jesus goes up a mountain and delivers the law. Do you see, Matthew uh, shows us as we go through the gospel that Jesus is fulfilling the role of the Son. He is the true Israel. And the experiences of Old Testament Israel were based on the blueprints of Jesus, the Son. And of course, a better Son was needed, wasn't it? Wasn't he? Because as we've already kind of hinted at, Old Testament Israel ultimately turned out to be a failure. Look what happened to the cardboard Son. Uh, Again, going back to Hosea, And chapter 11, we're told, the more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. Old Testament Israel didn't fulfill the role of the son. That's why a better son was needed. Old Testament Israel ended up being unfaithful to God, disobedient. 
But this son, the son that Matthew's telling us about, as he comes back from Egypt, as he establishes a new Israel, as he begins a new exodus, this son would be faithful. He wouldn't fail. He would be the perfect son. And he would fulfill the role that his father had given to him. That's the point that Matthew's making here. He's not just ripping uh, an Old Testament verse out of context. That sounds nice, I'll just use that. Matthew's showing us that Jesus is fulfilling a role. The role of the son the Old Testament Israel failed to fulfil. Okay, so there's our first heading. Let's come to our second heading then. Rachel weeping for her children. If Jesus is the new Israel, the son who will lead a new exodus, well, he'll also, as he does that, establish a new community, won't he? Under a new covenant. But how will that happen? Well, that's the answer uh, that we find in verses 16 to 18. So just look at verse 16. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. So this is awful. Herod, in an attempt to destroy Jesus, has all the baby boys and toddlers under two years old killed in Bethlehem and the surrounding regions. How many kids that was, we don't know. It probably wasn't in the hundreds, it was probably in the tens. But nevertheless, it's awful, isn't it? But again, Matthew wants us to see that as tragic as this event was, as evil as this event was, that it was a fulfilment of God's plan. Look at verses 17 to 18. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Matthew is quoting from Jeremiah chapter 31. So, if we're going to understand what Matthew wants us to understand here, we need to ask the question, what's going on in Jeremiah 31? And I think the, the, the first thing to understand about that chapter is this, that it is a chapter full of hope in the middle of intense sorrow. That's what Jeremiah 31 is. A message of real hope in the middle of intense sorrow. So if you've got a Bible, why not turn to Jeremiah 31? Uh, that's on page 836, if you're using a church Bible. And this is the situation in Jeremiah 31. It's roughly 600 years before Jesus is born. The Babylonians have invaded and they've won. And now they're taking prisoners back to Babylon. And it was at Ramah where these prisoners were held before being taken to Babylon. 
So just imagine the scene, just like we did with Joseph and Mary. Just imagine how awful this must have been. Here are mothers and their children are being taken away thousands of miles to Babylon. And these mothers, as far as they know, they will never see their kids again. Uh, Can you imagine just how awful that would be? To have your children taken off by an army, knowing that you will never see them again. No wonder uh, we're told about weeping and wailing. And actually... Uh, Jeremiah tells us that Rachel is weeping. Rachel was buried at Ramah. Rachel, obviously, the wife of Jacob. Uh, We often speak, don't we, of people spinning in their graves if something's happening that we think they wouldn't approve of. Well, here's Jeremiah, and he's picturing Rachel weeping in her grave. She kind of stands as the representative of all the mothers of Israel, and as the children are being taken away, Here's Rachel weeping, refusing to be comforted. But remember, this is a message of hope in the middle of intense pain. So where is the hope? Well, listen to what God says, verses 16 and 17 of Jeremiah 31. Thus says the Lord, keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, For there is a reward for your work, declares the Lord. And they shall come back from the land of from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, declares the Lord. And your children will come back to their own country. There is hope, God says. Uh, These children will return. The exile won't last forever. And we know as we go on in Jeremiah and in the Old Testament that after 70 years, the Israelites would be allowed to return to their own land. But actually, in this chapter, God goes further. And God says this, that when the people return from exile, it will usher in a new era. And this new era will be marked by a new relationship between God and his people. This is kind of really where the hope reaches its climax. So just look at verses 31 uh, to 34 of Jeremiah 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke... Though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people and no longer shall each one teach his neighbour and each his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. Do you see how much better a relationship, a covenant, this new one would be? You know, when I was at school, um, I went to what was considered a decent school, but in inner London, that's not saying much at times. So when I was at school in year 11, 
the class was filled with kids who didn't want to be there. And so most of the time, it was just crowd control. The teachers went out of their mind just trying to stop people talking and fighting and throwing stuff. Learning was really far at the back of the queue. It was just trying to keep control. And the only time things ever got anywhere in class was when the teacher was really strict. When the teacher would come down on people like a ton of bricks. Why? Because most of the kids didn't want to be there. Well, in some ways, that's like Old Testament Israel, isn't it? Under the Old Covenant. You see, under the Old Covenant, most people in Israel didn't have a personal relationship with God. Yes, the nation was under a covenant. The nation was in a relationship with God. But most individuals didn't love and know God. They didn't want to live under his rule and reign. And so they constantly rebelled. That's why they constantly turned to idols. And that's ultimately why Old Testament Israel failed in its role as God's son. And so what did the Lord have to do? He had to constantly act like a school teacher, threatening, disciplining, shouting. He loved them, but they were unruly. But, God says, look, this new covenant, it's different. Rather than only a few people enjoying a relationship with with God, rather than having to say to your neighbour, no God, no God, no. He says, they will all know me. And rather than having the law written on stone tablets left in a box, God says, the law will be written on their hearts and on their minds. They'll love my law and they'll love me. They'll think about how they can serve me. Ultimately, they'll live under God's law because they want to live under God's rule. And this will be a relationship where sins are completely forgiven. Not temporarily covered over, uh, as with the old covenant and the sacrifices, where you you had to go day after day and offer a sacrifice. Uh, And even when you offered that sacrifice, you knew that, yes, it was a covering for your sin, but your sin was never completely dealt with by those animal sacrifices. How could they be? You had to keep on going back day after day. But God says, no, I will forgive their iniquity and I'll remember their sin no more. This will be a new relationship. Far, far better than the old one. And this is the promise that God is making in Jeremiah 31. But remember, it will come on the back of intense pain. The mothers of Israel weeping over the children they've lost. So that's what's going on in Jeremiah 31. Why then does Matthew quote it here? Well, because what Matthew wants his readers to recognise is this, that the mourning that occurs here in chapter 2 is the precursor of the fulfilment of what God had promised through Jeremiah. In the middle of this intense pain, as the women of Bethlehem weep over their children, there is real cause for hope. The new relationship, 
the new covenant that God promised when those women were weeping over their children. It's about to come into its own. It's about to be established. Because the Messiah is not among the dead of Bethlehem's boys. He's escaped to Egypt. Okay, so that's what Matthew wants us to recognise there. Jeremiah's prophecy of a new covenant, hope in the midst of pain, is being fulfilled. Let's come to our final heading. He would be called a Nazarene. Now, as a general rule, movie sequels are usually bigger than the movie they're they're following, aren't they? They're not often better, often sequels aren't as good as the first film, but they're usually bigger. So, bigger explosions, bigger stories, bigger pay for the actors, everything about a sequel is bigger. And I, I suppose, if you think of a first century Jewish person, they would be expecting the same thing, wouldn't they, of the new covenant? The old covenant, how was it established? Well, there was a mountain, there was fire, there was earthquakes. It was all pretty dramatic. And so as a first century Jew, if you know that God is going to establish a new covenant, you're expecting something bigger. When the Messiah appears, he'll be this great king. And he'll lead an army. And he'll destroy the Romans. And Jerusalem is the place where he'll reign. And he'll reign there forever. And Israel will look great. The new covenant, in the minds of a a first century Jew, had to be bigger and better than what it was following. But is that what the new covenant looks like? Is that how it was established? Well, no. When God's kingdom broke into this world through Jesus, it appeared small and insignificant. And God's Messiah was a nobody. And I think that's the point in verse 23 where we're told that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Nazareth Nazareth was a nowhere place. I was speaking to my sister-in-law this week. Uh, She's from Essex, and I asked her, what's the worst place to live in Essex? And she told me about a place called Jaywick. You've probably never heard of it, but it's officially the worst place to live in Essex. Now, I imagine, if you're from Essex, then I'm really sorry to say this, but I imagine if if you said, I'm going to Essex, most people would say, well, why do you want to go there? It's not the greatest place to go in the world. It's not the greatest place to live, is it? But if you say to the people in Essex, I'm going to go and live in Jaywick, well, they'll say, whatever you do, don't go there. If Essex is bad enough, well, Jaywick is the worst of the worst. That's what Nazareth was like. Galilee was a backwater. Nothing significant, nothing important came out of Galilee, the Jews thought. And Nazareth, well, Nazareth was the lowest of the low. It was the pits. Even the Galileans looked down on the Nazarites. That's why Nathaniel said, didn't he, when he heard 
that Jesus had come from Nazareth. He said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Nazareth was a dump. It didn't even exist during Old Testament times, or if it did, it wasn't important enough to be mentioned. In fact, there's actually nowhere in the Old Testament that says he will be called a Nazarene. But actually, I think that's Matthew's point. The Messiah wouldn't be born in a palace. He would be born in absolute obscurity. He would be the son of a carpenter. And this would fulfill what the Old Testament said about him. So think about it. Psalm 22, Isaiah 53. What does the Old Testament tell us? It tells us there would be nothing about him that looks special. Nothing about him that you could look and say, wow, this guy is the Messiah. No, he would look like a nobody. Just the son of a carpenter living in Nazareth of all places. But this is the pattern of God's kingdom. This is how this new covenant would be established. Not a king at the head of an army kicking out the Romans, but a nobody, a carpenter teacher, living a life on the road and then going to a cross. This would be the nature of God's kingdom as it came through Jesus. He would be a Nazarene, a nobody. And I think that's good news for us. Because if that's the nature of God's kingdom, then it should set us free, shouldn't it, from that clamour and that constant desire to look impressive and to be impressive. What did Paul say? He said that God has chosen the weak and the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. Well, I don't know about you, but I often feel pretty weak. And I often feel pretty foolish. We're only a a mile and a half from Westminster here, aren't we? I was saying this morning with East Street on the edge of the Aylesbury Estate uh, in Woolworth, only a mile apart, Westminster and the Aylesbury Estate, but actually the two couldn't be further apart, really, could they? And yet God has chosen for the weak and the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. This is the nature of God's kingdom as it breaks in through Jesus Christ. Okay, so hopefully we understand all that Matthew said. Scripture is being fulfilled. Jesus is a new Israel, leading a new exodus. He's the true son. He's establishing this new covenant. It's coming on the back of intense pain, but he's he's establishing it. And it's almost here, Matthew says. But as he comes, he'll come in obscurity. Fulfilling the scriptures. Well, let's come to an end then, and let's just see the big picture as we come to an end. I wonder what links all of these prophecies together. Well, I think we could sum it all up in one word, couldn't we? Oppression. Oppression is when people are trodden down under an evil power. And I think that's what uh, we see here, isn't it? 
Why does God have to rescue Israel out of Egypt? And why does Jesus need to flee to Egypt? Well, it's oppression, isn't it? Oppression by Pharaoh, oppression by Herod, who in this passage is kind of a Pharaoh-like figure. Why are the women in Ramah and then the women in Bethlehem, why are they weeping? Because of oppression. Oppression from the Babylonians. Oppression from Herod. Why is Jesus forced to live in obscurity, in Nazareth of all places? Well, we're told, verse 22. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Why is Jesus living in Nazareth? It's because of oppression. He can't live in the open or he'll be killed. You see, at the heart of this passage is oppression. People being trodden down under a greater evil power. But of course, whenever we see oppression in the Bible, it's always ultimately pointing to a greater oppression, isn't it? The oppression that comes through sin and Satan and death and the curse. Sin is oppressive, isn't it? That constant cycle of moral failure that sinful human beings are completely incapable of being free from. It's epitomised, isn't it, in Old Testament Israel's failure. They couldn't break that cycle of sin and failure. And we're oppressed by Satan. Uh, What does Paul say to the Corinthians? He says that Satan has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot comprehend the truth. And we're oppressed by death. The results of sin. Every one of us, a dying person. Dying spiritually, having been separated from God by our sin, but ultimately destined to die eternally, separated from God forever. This is a world under the curse. It's a world, therefore, under oppression. It doesn't mean that we're innocent parties in this. It's an oppression of our own making, but it is nevertheless oppression. That's why Jesus said, whoever commits sin is a slave to sin. It's the language, isn't it, of oppression. But what do we see here in this passage? We see Jesus, the Son, willingly placing himself under oppression. He's hated. He's hunted. He's oppressed. He's forced to live in obscurity. It's astonishing, isn't it? He's the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the one that the wise men bow to, put their heads to the ground and worship, and yet he allows himself to be oppressed. He chooses a life of oppression, a life of slavery. Have you ever thought about Jesus as he grew up, an Israelite? Any Roman soldier 
any Roman soldier at all, or any Roman official, could simply turn to Jesus at any point and say, you boy, do this. And he would have to do it. He's the king of kings, the lord of glory. But he chooses to put himself under the yoke of oppression. But why does he do it? He does it, as Matthew's been showing us here, so that he can lead a new exodus, so that he can establish a new covenant, and so that he can ultimately save a new people, a new Israel. It's the stuff we see in Hollywood all the time, isn't it? You see there's a group of hostages, they've been captured, Uh, and what does the hero in the film do? Well, he, he kind of gets in among the hostages or allows himself to get captured, And then at the final moment, he reveals who he is and he maybe pulls out a gun or a sword or a lightsaber or something like that and he starts wreaking havoc and he sets all the hostages free. He becomes a hostage in order to set the hostages free. That's exactly what we see here. But Jesus doesn't do it with a weapon. He really does become a hostage. A slave. He really does place himself under the curse to experience the effects of sin, the threats of Satan, and the sting of death. And he does it all. He comes under this oppression so that he can lead us out of oppression. So that no longer would we be trapped in that cycle of sin and failure? So that those who exist in the new covenant, this new community, this new Israel, would actually be able to live to serve God. He does it so that we can be set free from Satan's power. So that actually Satan has no sway over us. And he does it so that rather than experience the oppression of death, we can experience eternal life. Do you see what Jesus has done? He has become a slave, placed himself under the yoke of oppression in order to set us free. And so, Christian friend, this Christmas holiday, with time on your hands, maybe more so than usual, Why not take the time to stop and to give God thanks for what he has done for you through Jesus? Jesus has established a new Israel and a better covenant. And because of that covenant, you are safe in God's arms. Read the book of Hebrews in chapter 10 and see what's said about this new covenant rather than those day-after-day sacrifices, Jesus has offered a once-for-all sacrifice. And because of that, the writer to the Hebrews says, you can be confident of entering into God's presence. You have something that all of those hundreds of thousands and millions of Old Testament people never had. 
You have something better. The new here is better. Because it's been established by Jesus through his cross. So why not, over this Christmas holiday, just take time to be thankful to God? Often as a pastor, I want to tell people to do something. But actually the point here is, Jesus has done everything. There's nothing you have to do here. Just be thankful and rejoice in what Jesus has achieved for us. Let's pray.